This is Jennifer Papito with the Restoration Home Podcast. This is the show where we talk about the peaceful path to connected families and restored communities. And today I'm talking to Stephen Lawson. He is the creator of the Monk Manual, which is one of my favorite resources for contemplative productivity is the way I would put it. I'm so excited to chat with you today, Stephen. Thank you for joining me. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you. So I've used the Monk Manual off and on. I also create a homeschool planner, so I've interspersed that in the Monk Manual, but I've taken your class a couple of times. um, You have a course that's kind of morphed into something new, but it was called Being and Doing, I think, originally. Mm -hmm. And and so this course is very life-changing because it talks about making goals that aren't just about productivity, but about being. Like for me, when I took that course, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't care about how much money I make. I want to be a really good mom and and lover of God and wife to my husband. Like those goals are much bigger. So why do I put all my energy into the goals that fulfill such smaller visions in a way? And your course, this being and doing concept really helped me with that. And one of your you know, biggest resources is the Monk Manual, which is a planner that also incorporates some of these thoughtful questions. But I think for a lot of people, and I, I was in churches, I've been in all kinds of churches in my you know, 49 years of life and um, 32 years of being married. So some of the churches that I've been in are very suspicious and almost antagonistic towards um, Catholics and anything that sort of has that scent of Catholicism. And so then monks or monasteries, they're like, why? Tell me a little bit about why. Perfect question. So I think we're in a really interesting time period in uh, human history. Maybe that's an easy thing to say uh, when you're you're living in it, right? I've only been here in this time period. But when you when you look at um, uh, what what I think is is going on here, you have a renewed interest in really a, a depth of spiritual practice that's taking place. And I think I think kind of commensurate to that has been a real mistrust of maybe particular structures or things that have seemed like they've gotten in the way of some of that spiritual, maybe being and becoming of spiritual growth. Now, I think a helpful reframe, like today, something that's really popular is to say like, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? Because it's just kind of seen as like, well, religion is bad. It's just a de facto thing. It doesn't even matter kind of who you are. That's just kind of the cultural milieu that we're in. Uh, but what's really interesting is I think of, uh, um, maybe when you look at tradition or practices um, that have been practiced for a long period of time as best practices, really, right? So, um if you want, for example, want to become an incredible runner, you don't want to go and just try and invent the way to go and do everything all over again, right? You you try to learn from the people who have done it in the past and done it really well. Sometimes traditions can be things that are really just empty baggage, but sometimes tradition are the things that have been tried and tested for a long period of time and they just work. And so we shouldn't be as suspicious of some of these things because sometimes it's it's really a lot of wisdom that we're losing. The thing is we can go and try and figure it all out on our own, or we can say, who's done this before and who's done it really well? And I would argue that monks have figured out a lot of things. And one thing that's really interesting too, if you look at the history of monasticism, I mean, it's, it's traditionally been something that's really sourced some of the 
brightest minds, some some incredible, incredible thinkers, some people who are extremely interested in spiritual growth. So while we can go and look at it and say like, oh, maybe that's just like an old dusty thing, I think that it's actually where we can find a lot of really practical ways to better embody our spiritual practice. Yes, so good. And one of the reasons that I'm curious about it is because I've read two books. One was How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill, and one was The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. And both of them really highlight how the practices that they participated in could be an anchor for us as modern families watching civilization to some degree erode or collapse around us. And I know, you know, everyone has a different idea of what civilization should look like and what it means to be civilized. But I think, you know, having unhoused people on the streets, I mean, that is a pretty big deal, uh, you know, seeing the, the addictions on the rise and things like that, I think are very alarming too, especially for families who are trying to raise children with a little bit more innocence and hope. And so I feel like these monastic practices really do give us a framework for creating a more hopeful world or restored world. So one of the things then that people who, you know, maybe the deconstructed Christians or the secular people have a complaint about monks is there've been so many bad stories about what priests have done. And that's not necessarily in a Benedictine monastery or something, but how do you, how do we reconcile even the bad things that Christians do with the good things that we can learn from them? That's such a great question. So I don't know who all your listenership is, um, but uh, I live in America, right? And the thing is, is there's a lot of things about America that I don't really love, right? There's a lot of things that I think that's probably not good. There's cultural elements that are probably not good. Uh, but at the same time, you try to take the good things that you can and apply them. As a general uh, principle, what I try to do is spend uh, as little time, I guess, focusing on the things that I either can't control or are not connected to me. And I try to approach my life really every single day in, with, with a question of like, how can I create good here, right? And so the emphasis, the point of emphasis is generally, uh, again, coming back to what is actually going to um, lead me to a higher level of flourishing. I mean, it's interesting, and this is where it gets really complicated, because when you, uh, I, again, what's going on right now, if you, you gave the example of priests, like part of what's going on there is um, you have corruptions of power that happen. And, and that happens with priests, but that also happens with school districts. That also happens with politics. That happens all the way through. That's just part of human nature when you go and, and people are able to go and corrupt power in one way or another. And a lot of these things are actually very complicated. But for me, I think my seeking is really looking around and saying, okay, well, given all the brokenness that is the reality of our world in every direction, how, how can I go and respond most powerfully uh, and move towards um, towards towards that greater good. I, I think I think another thing I would just say is um, when when you look at when you look at specifically in a Christian context when when there's any sort of abuse or there any there's any sort of um, uh, corruption, that's not because Christianity was being lived most profoundly in that instance. Do you know what I'm saying? So, uh, and, and you could even take it for monks. Like there are, I'm sure, stories people have. I think there's actually less so with monks because monks, at least in a modern time, don't have as much power as like maybe a cleric would have. But um, 
you uh, you might not have as many stories, but I'm sure there's there's bad things that have happened. People who have experienced bad things, uh, but still, uh, what with the actual directional focus of that life is, uh, it it doesn't prove that wrong by any means. It just means that there are sick people at that hospital. Right. <laughs> so good because I feel like you know a big part of what we're seeing in society that we haven't been really aware of, I think we're waking up to it, is that there is a continuous negative worldview that people are trying to feed us so that we all feel like victims and feel hopeless and give up. And I love that you, you know, emphasize, I mean, what we, what we do have to do in some ways is train our minds to see what is good and lovely and and beautiful and, and keep, maybe keep our focus a little smaller, which I think the monks were really good at in their, um, in their, in their way of life. One of the things that I, I really love about the monk manual, and especially we're in a series on prayer right now with the restoration home podcast is that you have these reflection questions at the end of the day. And one of them is I felt unrest when, and I feel like that question is hard for us sometimes as, especially talking to my moms who are listening, you know, we can get into a season with our children where we're making mistakes and we don't ever take time to pause and say, what is going on? Why am I feeling this way? What's the trauma underneath? And then make, make a better day the next day because we took time to evaluate it. How did you come to this idea of taking time to examine what was hard about our day even? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something we talk about uh, is this idea called the par method. And in some ways this is going to be a bit abstract, but when, when you really think about it, um, there's, there's really three levels of intentionality upon which we can approach life. So uh, the, the first basic thing is, uh, is a very baseline. Everyone's always acting. We're all acting all the time. Every single person who woke up today is going to act, even if you're taking a nap, like that's your, your, that's the action you're taking, right? We're, we're beings that are acting and living through time. And that's our experience. Like that is, that is what it is like for us to be humans. Now, productivity is a genre, and it goes even broader than this because it, it's not even just the productivity genre. It's really anytime someone's trying to grow, what they tend to do is then they start introducing preparation. So you start thinking about, okay, well, how can I go and maybe approach this a little bit more intentionally, right? How can I go and maybe actually decide this is the thing that matters today versus that this is the thing that doesn't matter. I'm going to say yes to this and no to that. That's all well and good. But the third piece, which is, I, I think we're not very good at this, and partially it's just because there's such velocity upon which we're operating that it's hard to find this. I think what maybe naturally was there, these natural quiet moments, like you even think of going to the grocery store, in the past, maybe you'd have a, a 50 second break where you're not thinking, uh, and now you pull out your phone, right? So there's no there's no time to really just naturally sit and ponder and understand, distill these different lessons. But what reflection does, is it gives us this ability to actually look back and learn the lessons that that were already there, but maybe we weren't seeing, maybe we weren't paying attention to. I'm a big believer that one of the greatest guides we have is our own sense of peace. And uh, it, we're always, it's always giving us cues, right? It's always going and telling us things, uh, but if we don't pay attention to it, we'll miss it. And sometimes we can get so busy that we can miss it for years on end. I, I, maybe by analogy, uh, you could think of maybe someone in a relationship, right? Like a relationship, uh, probably there's cues coming up that something's going wrong in a relationship for a substantial period of time. 
but you can also spend years not paying attention to that until it gets really bad. Right. And it's the same thing for us. And, and the thing is, for me, I, I believe that the ability to go and have this sort of examine of your day, of your week, of your month enables you to really pay attention and then discern what the next step might be for you. Yeah, that's really good. And it's interesting because I'm I'm working with uh, a counselor right now and she's really emphasizing the importance of taking time to grieve and uh, even process hard things that happen to us as children, kind of examine the traumatic points in our lives so that we can be more whole adults and stop kind of triggering backward to these moments. But there are people who say, you know, we just have to grin and bear it. We just have to get it done. And they kind of oppose this idea of taking time to process. They feel like if you take time to process or if you, you know, if you're navel gazing, then you're just going to not get anything done and we'll just be all so emotional. We'll be crying all the time. What do you say to people who are, you know, trying, like they maybe want to develop a more contemplative way of life and insert more reflection into their lives, but they're almost afraid that if they do that, it'll be too much and they'll just get stuck. Mm -hmm. I I think the first thing is to acknowledge that there is fear there and to acknowledge that um, there's something that they are afraid of. And then to ask the question of, is it useful for them to then ignore it or not? By analogy, you know, I am, there's a question actually that's in the weekly prompts. That's what is God teaching me? And I serve a very diverse audience through the Monk Manual. We have a lot of Christians, but not everyone's Christian. We have some people actually who are atheists. Uh, And I will sometimes get emails saying, you know, I love this tool, but I don't like that question. Um, And sometimes it'll be very emotionally charged. And the way I'll explain it to them is I will say, here's the thing. This is not really a question of intellectual belief. Just by the nature of the fact that you're responding the way you are and there's emotion there, you have an index card in your mind that has the word God written on it. And whether you choose to go, it's really not a question for you to be, uh, uh, um, it's not an intellectual belief question so much as this psychological reality that that exists, right? So the the thing is, is by engaging that question, you can go and decide like, what's going on in that process? Why am I being triggered in that way? What is that really about? Um, And even if someone maybe does hold that intellectual belief, they can still mull over that and be like, what what is that that image on that index card for me personally? So the thing is, is when you're when you're looking back um, and you're and you're actually paying attention to how you're feeling. uh, Yes, that can be scary. uh, But your other alternative is to um, kind of be willfully ignorant to what's going on, which short term. Uh, might feel like it serves you, but but it doesn't. I'm also a really big believer that usually our path of growth is tied to courage. It is tied to engaging the things that that scare us a bit to the degree we're able. Um, and and in some ways, again, like uh, this is a little bit beyond the scope of the question, but how, how can you go and take whatever that is that you're afraid of? And I, I think that the most powerful counterbalance to that is actually, or the strongest energy to meet that fear is actually love. So if you can go and you can al- allow love to meet the fear, that's when you actually arrive at transformation. That's when something fundamentally changes. And, and at the bottom of all of it, I'm a really, really big fan of freedom. And anything that you're running from means that you're not free from it. So good. I love what you said about, you know, the strongest energy to meet fear is love. That's so good. And, you know, I think that 
what I've seen, honestly, is when people don't take time to do that examine process to, you know, why am I feeling unrest? Is there someone I need to forgive? Is there a lie I'm believing? Am I imagining the worst about a situation? If we don't take time to do that, we get hard and bitter. You know, people, I love the quote, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. And I think this is, this is partly what contributes to um, a lack of awareness of God and maybe even some mental illness is just that the years of running away from things instead of uh, examining them and maybe forgiving or whatever the process involves for you. One, one thing, if I can add, add one small thing there, something that's also very hidden from our view, and it happens to us individually, but it's also a, a massive part of our culture. I actually think that one of the reasons we're so busy is because we're running away from the things we're afraid of. What I mean by that is one of the best tactics we have to not actually deal with those things is to just get busy, to just stay on the surface, to just keep on loading up our plates, to just keep on this and that. And so one of the things that actually makes it like a lot, most people would say like, oh, I want things to be simpler. I want to be able to like really enjoy. I want to be able to be present. But the thing is, is like when you do that, when everything quiets down, then it's you there actually having to go and face the thing that probably you've been busy uh, in, in some ways as a way of kind of covering that up. So, so it's, it, those things are very intertwined as well, which is interesting in the productivity space because a lot of times some of the impulse to do more is actually us running away from ourselves. Oh, so good, especially in, in light of how important attachment is. Because what I'm talking to my moms a lot about is the importance of slowing down so you can look your children in the eyes or so you can be responsive when they are struggling and not just reactionary. And we can't do that if we're not slowing down. And if and if that's what's happening is that you're loading your plate up so you don't have to think about the ways that you feel inadequate or the ways that you don't know what you're doing, then so much of this is purposeless. And you know that's one thing I love that you have being and doing goals because I think even in parenting, you know, there are so many beliefs that we have that, you know, our children have to be in all these classes and they have to have all this preparation. And a lot of it washes out at some point and leaves them perhaps even less prepared for adult life than if, if you'd had a slower childhood with a little bit more time for imagination, a little bit more time for play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I think um, in some ways helping children to learn to to be is one of the most pragmatic teaching emphasis that I is is possible. And and in most modern school environments, that is not an emphasis at all. Right. Which is why I'm like, I don't even know how that that could be saved at this point. There's there's so much research and they keep doing things that are absolutely com contrary to the research. And so I'm like, I don't know. I don't think they care. Um, so one of the other things I love about the monk manual is that you emphasize thankfulness because, you know, obviously there is a time to contemplate what's going on and why we feel unrest and even the hard things that we're dealing with. But there's also a time to just recognize what is good in our lives. And you, you know, you have one space to um, write down when you feel unrest, but you have six for writing down when you're at your best and the highlights of the day. What is some of the research behind encouraging people to take note of what is good in their lives? 
Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things, and I won't get into it fully, but one of the things that was an inspiration for the Monk Manual, there's a psychologist by the name of Martin Seligman who created um, something called the PERMA model, which was really the foundation for what's called positive psychology. So positive psychology is not... Um, uh, it's not so much just think good thoughts and things become good. It's 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 actually more so that acknowledgement that most of psychology has been focused on dealing with negative symptoms and problems rather than asking questions around what leads to human flourishing. And so one of the things that's in this PERMA model is this idea of positive emotion uh, as uh, as a a fundamental aspect of, of human flourishing. And I think it's really practical because you had alluded to this earlier, but sometimes you can look culturally and see uh, just how many problems there are, right? And you don't even need to look far, right? For most of us, we can look even to our immediate family and see problems, right? We can look at some of our relationships and see problems. Um, and, and the thing is, is uh, there is a real battle that's a hidden battle for us every single day between discouragement and hope. And it's our task, one of our primary tasks, to be, actually maintain that feeling of gratitude and hope and positive emotion, not because it's just like, uh, woo-woo, let's feel really good about things, but because it's just very pragmatic, right? If we want to be able to go and show up every day and do some creative good in the lives of the people we love, we, we have to take care of that aspect of ourselves. Now, gratitude's a really interesting thing. Because I'm a big believer that actually all things that probably most of your listeners recognize as truth, at some point, science will catch up and prove all that's true. I believe that. I believe there'll be a formula. We're just not there yet. But um, but gratitude is one of those areas where we are there. I mean, there's so much research on gratitude and how that impacts us psychologically, how it impacts things like personal grit, how it impacts... Um, it's, it's not even a refutable thing. Uh, and it's actually been something that... Uh, secularly is very much acknowledged. It's like, this is a really important thing. So um, I think that's interesting. I think it's also interesting just because I think it's one of those first pieces of the formula that's been proven, uh, but it is, um, it's essential. Yeah. One of the, you know, you, you have people set goals through the monk manual for being and doing, you know, the, the idea is that our life isn't just about what we do, but there has to be an uh, an essence to who we are and some values that we live by what, you know, and, and you kind of answered that question a way throughout this conversation, but I think some people feel like, Oh, if, if we're just being, and we're just like sitting in the garden and not really getting any gardening done, or we're just sitting down with our kids and not getting any housework done, will the world turn to chaos? Yeah. So, so, um, okay. First thing is, uh, <laughs> We can't, we can't control what we can't control. So, so actually the, the, the limits of what we can do in some ways are much more than we would imagine. And in other ways are much less than we would imagine. Like if you take any sort of political issue for the vast, vast, vast majority of your listeners, they probably can do very, very little about that issue. Right. With that said, in your family, in your community, you probably can actually do a lot more than you imagine. Um, and, and, and that's not necessarily through what you do. Some of that's just actually who you are. Some of that's just like inhabiting um, the fullness of potential that of, of, of who you can be. Uh, the, the thing is, is um, I think that we often um, we often can get caught sometimes. And, and I think especially if, if, if you're, say, a, a homeschooling mother, it can be difficult because a lot of the the. Um, the kind of cultural trends place value based upon kind of your worth in, for lack of a better term, like the marketplace, right? Like 
how much money are you making in this way? What's your title in this way? And so when you choose a more intimate, maybe more hidden existence, it can be difficult because it's not seen as well. What I what I find um, has been really liberating for me, and hopefully this carries because it's a little abstract, but I, I actually envision that all of our doing, really, really our task is primarily being and becoming. And our doing is actually the material upon which we find that being and becoming, right? So it's kind of the material, the it's our task that maybe we have to apply ourselves to, um, but it's it's not um, it's not the heart of it. Uh, an analogy would be, uh, you can imagine that um, if you are an actress or an actor in a play, uh, your job is to focus on scene and play that role as well as you can, but but you keep a distance from realizing that like you're not really like that queen or that king on the stage you're just playing the part as well as you can um and so in some ways the the effects are not necessarily in your control all you can do is the best that you can do and try to really inhabit that specific role that specific call that you're in in any given time for me that's really liberating because then it, it frees me from a from um, spending a lot of energy trying to control things. And rather than asking, how do I go and control this? I ask, how can I influence or how can I create some sort of creative good? You've heard me say that a number of times, but that's like kind of the impulse is I'm always asking myself, what is the greatest creative good I can do? Not only on a large scale, but in moment to moment, right? The, the being piece, why it's important is because it, it's not about endpoints necessarily. It's about right now, People who are listening right now, you're doing what you're doing. How do you make this one moment the fullness of what it can be, right? And often that's through just engagement. It's through fully engaging whatever is in front of you, whether that's a spouse, whether that's the child in front of you, whether that's preparing some sort of lesson. Um, and there's so much meaning and fulfillment then because you're not going and outsourcing it to someone else telling you, hey, this is what's meaningful. You, you, The meaning's there. It's just learn to see it. Oh, that's really important. I mean, every moment with our children, in my opinion, is so meaningful because it's it's so transformative. And that's one of the premises of the book that I'm writing is that adopting some of these monastic practices, a rule of life that's centered around work and prayer and order and some of these really time-tested values can be transformative to, for sure, our families and even the culture and community around us. Do you think that you're seeing this proved out in your research? Uh, I, I think absolutely. I, I, you know, it's um, <laughs> you can look at it from a lot of different angles. If you look at anyone who achieves greatness in any area, uh, they don't do it through like trick plays or anything usually very fancy. A lot of it comes down to showing up, having your heart in the right place and doing a lot of the basics over and over again really well. This is the thing that we actually lose sight of is um, the masters even of any area, any discipline, never stop doing the basics. They're always doing the same basics over and over again. They build upon that, but the fundamentals are always there. And so uh, I'm just, <laughs> I'm a really, really big believer that um, uh, you trust the process and you just keep on showing up. And if you do that, uh, it's it's kind of the law of the universe that success does tend to compound. Not that this is about success in a particular worldly sense, but but in any domain, if you keep on doing the work, if you if you stick with it, uh, you will see results. Uh, just as like a small aside, it's funny. I I, I know a, a person who runs a large um, gym 
Uh, and the one time we were talking, he's like, you know, at the end of the day, he charges a lot of money uh, for, for coaching um, people. And he's like, at the end of the day, it all really just comes down to consistency. That's all it comes down to. He's like, you could come to the gym and all you do is walk back and forth across the gym every day. He's like, and you still would see massive benefits, right? And, and that's the thing. Like we think there's some secret formula where it's really just comes down to, to having a plan, sticking with the plan, doing the work and finding joy in the work. Yeah, this is one of my meditation verses right now. It's Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and enjoy safe pasture. And it's like, I believe that what you're saying is so true. That it's just faithfulness in doing those little right things over and over that makes a difference in the world. Oh, my goodness. It's been so inspiring to chat with you today, Stephen. People can find the Monk Manual and the uh, Life Atlas where? Uh, monkmanual.com is the best place to go. We're also on Instagram at monkmanual. Uh, we haven't posted. We're, we're a little bit of a hiatus there. But yeah, I would love if, if any of this resonates, uh, come find us. We got a bunch of free resources as well, some different templates you can download. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you tonight. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really encouraged by your words. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jennifer.